Last uh, Sunday, we looked at God's call on young Jeremiah and um, worked a little bit to apply that to our own lives, God's call on our lives. This morning, I want to take a look at a different Old Testament prophet and address an important sort of follow-up question, and it's this. How do you stay engaged in God's call on your life for the long haul? When God calls you to step into a particular ministry, how do you stay fresh? How do you stay engaged? And here's the word I want to just have ringing in the back of your head through this morning. How do you stay healthy? You know, in the midst of all the things, all the struggles, all the things that come at you in life. Life, in many ways, is a marathon. And not that I've ever run one, and probably never will, but I know enough to know that you gotta, you gotta stay focused. You know, you can't get distracted on the long haul of a long race. You need to stay um, dialed in to be able to make it all the way to the finish line. You can't give up. And I think Jesus drills into that very well in uh, a statement that he makes in Luke 9. Luke 9, 62. Hold on to this verse this morning and maybe in the week ahead. Luke 9, 62. Luke 9, 62. This is Jesus' words. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is, and here's a word, fit. No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, gets distracted, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And again, I think the operative word there is, is fit. To be fit for service in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you need to put your hand on the plow, his calling on your life, and keep it there. Even when you don't want to, even when you're at the end of your rope, even when it looks impossible, even when it looks like you're totally wasting your time, even, and this has happened often to me, maybe you, when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, like maybe I made a mistake here, like this is crazy. When you don't know for sure that God is in it, Jesus is suggesting here, even then, keep your hand where it belongs, on the plow. Consistency is the word that I think he's getting at that sort of describes Jesus' point. It is keeping the main thing the main thing. I can't tell you how often I've been tempted to get off the main thing. How many ministries I've watched start off strong and then they get off track very good things, but they're not keeping the main thing, the main thing. And I don't think anybody can tell you what the main thing of your life is, but the Lord between him and you. You know what I mean? Keeping the main thing, the main thing. Just showing up day after day after day after day. And I've seen the power of that. I think especially in our, in our ministry to high school students. You know, um, Amy's and my, our, our own kids, now adults, reap the benefit of having adults in their lives showing up every Sunday night, every Sunday night, every Sunday. The power of meeting with someone every Sunday night for four years is like beyond description, you know? And there's many times where it didn't seem like I'm not sure that, and yet just followed up day after day after day after day. You do that, Jesus suggests, and you are fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this morning, I want to look at the life of someone who showed up again and again and again, big time. Even when things were like stacked against them, it couldn't possibly be um, that God's calling me to this. The person's name is Elijah. 
the prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. Now, unlike Jeremiah last week, there is no book named uh, Elijah. You know, so to find out about him, you need to go to the two uh, books of the Kings. First Kings towards the end, 17 to 19, and then on into Second Kings 1 and 2. And if you turn there with me, First Kings starting in around 17, we're going to read in just a minute. Now, there's really no reference to Elijah as a kid. He just sort of drops out of the sky out of nowhere in adulthood. Um, he was a kid, but we don't, we don't see that in the biblical narrative. He drops out of nowhere into the story in 1 Kings 17. And then dramatically, if you were to skip ahead, and I encourage you to do it, it's a wild ride. You know, just like I asked you last week to read and dig deep into a little bit of uh, Jeremiah, to read on through the end of 2 Kings 2. But he, at the end of his life, um, never actually dies. He encounters this whirlwind and a fiery chariot. He has a seat and it just takes him into heaven. So he never dies. And in between that quick entrance and that dramatic exit is a series of events that are beyond description. So much so that many consider Elijah the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. His name means, my God is the Lord. How would you like that as your name? You know, hi, my name is Bob. What's yours? My God is the Lord. You know, that's, that's quite a, a calling card. He was like a walking testimony. And yet, and yet that play, bears out in his life as we see the narrative filled in. Elijah is mentioned in the New Testament like 28 times. You know, so you have the chunk of Old Testament scripture about him, and then it's reciprocated and played out throughout the New Testament again and again and again. On the one hand, he shows up in the New Testament with Moses at the transfiguration of Jesus, recorded by three of the gospel writers and Peter. So great witness to the fact that that was clearly, Eli who was that was clearly Elijah up there, with Jesus and with Moses. And then on the other hand, in James chapter 5, James describes him as a man just like us. Elijah was an ordinary person just like you through whom God accomplished extraordinary things. And man, I love that. You know, how would you like that said about you at the end of your life? And the fact is, my friends, someone is going to get up in a space just like this or down in a sanctuary. And I've done this many times, and maybe some of you have too, <clears throat> where you eulogize someone. And what is going to be said about you after you have gone to be with Jesus? You know, someone's going to have to think through what are the high points, what made this person tick, and could you think of anything better than for it to be said about you simply. You know what? She was just an ordinary woman. And I had a front row seat to, to her life. And even though she was ordinary, God did extraordinary things through her, through her obedience. I can't think of anything I would want said about me more than, than that. Elijah was an ordinary man through whom God accomplished extraordinary things. Now, last week I mentioned that there were two types of Old Testament prophets. There was the type of prophet who spoke the words God gave him, like 
like Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, and they would deliver that, the words given to them, to the people God told them. There, there was another type of prophet, and this was Elijah, who we're looking at today, whose not so much words, but the events through his life. His life was like the mouthpiece of God. So it's God doing things through people like Elijah, God speaking things through prophets like Jeremiah. Time and again, God did incredible things through Elijah. Things that God wanted people to know about him. And those things were powerful. They were consequential. God was on the move, refining and doing. And the fact is, he is today as well. I grew up in a nice little sleepy church in suburban Minneapolis. And I got to tell you, I gave my life to Jesus. I believed the Bible. But I never really saw or thought there was much evidence to be given today to God doing things. And when I got off to college, I had my mind blown that God is still advancing his kingdom today. Not in crazy ways, although sometimes, you know, but in, in, in people's lives that just keep showing up. God is on the move today, advancing and refining and doing. And many times, actually, those things are pretty extraordinary. And they certainly were in Elijah's life. In fact, in chapter 17, I think you can find seven extraordinary. Let me, let me rattle those off just to kind of give you a flavor of who Elijah was and God working through him. The first one is found in 1 Kings 17.1. So it is the first reference in the Bible to Elijah. And he comes stepping right into human history. It comes right in rather to the biblical narrative here with his guns blazing. And it really sets the tone for what is to come in Elijah's life. In this verse, 1 Kings 17.1, he was gutsy. He was like outrageous. He was courageous. He was confident. And he goes right up to King Ahab, who, by the way, you remember last week we talked about how rotten and evil and bad the kings were, especially in the northern kingdom. Well, Ahab was the worst of the worst. And you're in danger even going to a good king and making demands and outrageous statements, let alone to someone like Ahab. Set first, first Kings 22:25 describes Ahab this way. How would you like this description of you one day? There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner imaginable. King Ahab was the worst of the worst. And into his throne room marches Elijah. And God told him to go do this. And, and, and it was to get his attention this vile king, because God wanted Ahab's attention because the people that he ruled over were special to God. This, again, as I mentioned last week, these were not collections of people that spoke the same language who kind of had a border. These were, these were a group of, this was a, a nation of people that God had made a covenant with. And even though they turned their back on him, he will never he is relentless. So in marches uh, Elijah. 
And he says this, and this is a bit of a paraphrase in the first verse of, of, of chapter 17, 1 Kings. Listen, Elijah says, there will be no more rain over the next few years until I say so. And I won't say so, he tells Ahab, until God tells me to. And with that, he turns heel and starts walking out. And it doesn't say it, but I just imagine him stopping at the door of the throne room and turning back and saying something like, and by the way, Ahab, any concerns? Why don't you just check in with your other gods, the Baal gods, the gods of the weather, and see what they can do for you. And with that, he turns heel and walks out. Well, at first, Ahab doesn't think much of Elijah's drought threat. But as months and then years went on, things started getting dire. And, and he, wanted, he wanted Elijah's head once he turned back on the rain. But Elijah was living at the time out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of a desert so that King Ahab wouldn't know where he is. And in that desert, he met a woman. And this woman was walking by one day and she had a little, little flask of oil, a little bit of oil and a little bit of another flask of some wheat and she could make a little bit of bread. And uh, Elijah was hungry, so he asked her for those two little flasks. And the story's told in the, in the biblical narrative here that over the ensuing years of the uh, drought, that little bit of oil and that little bit of, of wheat turned into unlimited bread and food for the woman, her son, and Elijah. While he was living in the desert and providing food for the woman and her son and himself, in a miraculous way, the son suddenly tragically dies. So Elijah grabbed the dead boy, dead, and cried out to God that he would bring him back to life. And he did. Like God brought the dead boy back to life through Elijah's prayer. From there, Elijah put into motion a wild contest between himself, one person, and 450 prophets of Baal. And you know this story. We don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of it now, but you remember this from your Sunday school days. The contest was to see which God, the God of Elijah or the weather gods of Baal, which God could bring a lightning bolt out of the sky and light a dead bull on fire, a sacrificed bull on, on fire. After Elijah stacked the decks in favor of the opposition, after he gave every advantage over to the 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had total victory over the gods of Baal. And with that, Elijah rounded up the 450 and ordered them killed. Elijah then asked God to have it start raining. And the timing was perfect because there could be no question of the Baal weather gods doing it because all their prophets were now dead. So Elijah cries out to God to start raining and it does hard. And before things got too muddy and too crazy in this torrential downpour after this long absence of rain, Elijah goes up to King Ahab and he said, hey, you better get going back to your palace because things are going to get really muddy. Kind of a quirky little twist in the narrative here. And scripture says that Ahab headed off with his army, all riding fast chariots with horses. And it goes on to say, according to 1 Kings 18, 46, with the power of God having come on him, he tucked his coat into a belt and ran ahead of Ahab, beating the chariots 
all the way to Jezreel. So here's the point. Elijah had success after success after success after success after success. Through him, God stopped the rain. He made unlimited food. He, bought a, he brought a dead boy back to life. He lit a water-soaked bull on fire with a lightning bolt. He did away with all the pagan prophets. He caused it to rain after a three-year drought. And then he, just for fun, raced against a chariot drawn by horses and won by the power of God. Success after success after success after success. And what was the result for Elijah after all those successes? After seeing God do incredible things through his life. What, what happened next? Well, let's read about it. It's in 1 Kings 19, 3 to 5. 1 Kings 19, 3 to 5. We pick up the story. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And with that, he laid down under the tree and fell asleep. Man, through the years, that passage, more than just about any other one, has haunted me. I think especially in the ministry, you know? But just living life. That passage, maybe more than any other, has, has been incredibly sobering to me. And, and here's why. Because sometimes in life, it's possible to wake up one morning... And find yourself totally depleted. I mean, sometimes it can, just, it can just happen. And when that happens, your mind can go to a really dangerous place. And it certainly did for Elijah here. Sometimes even when things are going great, and, and they had been for Elijah, fear, loneliness, depression, feelings of worthlessness, thoughts of suicide, can grab a hold of you and take you to a dangerous place. We see that. Now, that's a terrible list. Fear, loneliness, depression, feelings of worthlessness, thoughts of suicide. But it's a list I want to look at a little bit for remainder of time this morning. First, fear. If there's anything that can debilitate you, it's fear. Fear can stop you in the tracks it can cause you to not think straight. It can cause you to turn and run. And that's what happened to Elijah. 19.3 of 1 Kings, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And he ran and he was afraid because, part, in part because he had been threatened by Ahab's wife. But I think it was way more than that. He had been up against way more frightening things than that. I, I think there was way more going on. It was complicated but at its heart, I think it was, the main factor was he, was he was just depleted. He was like exhausted. His defenses were down. He was not thinking straight. And I think we can all identify with that from time to time. So Elijah ran in fear from Jezreel in the northern kingdom, scripture says, all the way to Beersheba in the southern kingdom. That was a 
hundred miles. A woman threatens him and he turns heel with a companion, it turns out, and runs a hundred miles, crosses an international border. What is going on there? Fear makes you think and do crazy things. And if that's you this morning, if fear has a grip on you, whether it's you would deem it as rational or irrational, I would really encourage you to do two things. One is take that fear to a father that knows you and loves you. I mean, that's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, he was... He was so up against what was about to happen to him, as committed as he was, that he sweat blood. And he went to prayer and he asked other people to pray for him as well. Give your fear to God and then bathe it in Scripture. Bathe it in Scripture. And there's so many Scriptures. Do a search. It's easy and there's tons of Scripture to bathe your fears in because Scripture is honest about the things. It doesn't just sweep them aside under the rug. It says, yeah, that is scary. And, and I'm bigger than that, God says. Deuteronomy 31.8. He will, God will never leave you, nor ever forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Isaiah 43.1. Isaiah 43.1. Man, came sailing in through the sanctuary window one day and bonked me in the head. I was sitting in there and just asking God for a passage for a particular purpose. And, and this verse, I, I've, I've claimed it as my own and I've used it so much in the ministry. Isaiah 43, 1. Do not fear, for I, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and listen to me. You belong to me. Do not fear, Because I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. I know everything about you, including your name. And you belong to me. So don't think this thing coming up against you, you're on your own. Because I have more at stake here than even you do. I am with you in this. And the Psalms. And so many other scripture passages. If you're struggling with fear and anxiety, and we are in this culture... Talk to God and embrace the truth of his scripture. Second, loneliness. Once in Beersheba, Elijah did something incredibly foolish. Second half of 19.3. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. That is not smart. He was all alone in the wilderness. You and me, we were not created to go it alone. It's impossible. And and we've tried. Elijah is trying here, although there's a reason why he left his companion. We'll see in just a second. Not having people in our life to encourage us, to speak truth to us, to love on us, to challenge us, that's that's dangerous. If you've ever been in a lonely place, you, you know how debilitating that can be. And if you're in that place right now, I would suggest you're in the right place here in this church. I mean, ultimately, what is a church? This is not some Sunday go-to-meeting club. You know what I'm saying? What is a church? A church is a family. We call each other brothers and sisters. And even if today is your first day here and you have no clue who Jesus is, we welcome you here. 
Like we're in this together. Like we get it. We understand the struggle of life. And the beautiful thing is, so does Jesus. And we're in it together. Uniquely brothers and sisters. And when you're full of fear and loneliness, it's so easy to become depressed. And that's what happened to Elijah. He became clearly depressed here. And to make matters worse, his depression was combined with feelings of of worthlessness. I am no better than my ancestors, he said to himself. Now, there's all sorts of implications for a, a statement like that. I am as rotten as my grandparents and my parents. Things I swore I would never, you know what I mean? We've all said things like that from time to time. Families impact us in ways that we can never fully know. It's complicated. Elijah goes, I am no better than my ancestors. And so a a toxic concoction of fear and haunting memories from past days and depression and feelings of worthlessness ultimately led to feelings of wanting to end it all. Elijah decided that the only way out of these overwhelming feelings was to kill himself or better have God do it, you know? And that, it seems to me, is why he left his companion back a day's journey. That that part of the story made no sense. But in retrospect, it kind of does. Like, uh, why don't you stay here? There's a water supply. I'll I'll come back and get you in a couple of days. Well, he had no intention of coming back and getting him in a couple of days. He had planned this out as is so often the case. He was on a trajectory here to self-destruction is what he was. And scripture says, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. Take my life, he said. Listen, if you're feeling depressed, depressed to the point of wanting to end your life. You need to know that all is not hopeless. Or someone in your life, they need to know that all is not hopeless. The circumstances you find yourself in today will not last. Sometimes we get stuck thinking that things won't change, but in fact, things do change. You need to know that we all experience a range of emotions. Sometimes we're feeling on top of the world, and sometimes we don't. That is a natural range of human emotions, but when things get stuck down here, you you need to do something about it. And if you have a friend who's stuck down here, you need to step in for their safety and for their well-being. If you're feeling way down, the first thing you need to do is to find someone to talk to and to unpack that. Someone who cares and someone who can remind you that there is, in fact, hope. A hope found in Jesus Christ. We here at this church are available in that regard to come confidentially, bring a friend, come yourself, and let us help find you help. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. For Elijah and for you and for me, today God has plans to prosper, to give hope, and to give a future. 
And he does it by meeting us right where we are. He doesn't expect us to get all fixed up first and then we can come and worship God. He meets us right at our point of need when we're fearful, lonely, depressed, feeling worthless, exhausted, suicidal. He comes to us as he did Elijah and he meets our needs. And here's how he does it. He does it again and again gently and tangibly and totally. He meets our emotional needs. He wants to do that. For Elijah, that happened as he convinced them that his life did count for something, that his life wasn't a waste. He meets our physical needs. For Elijah, he did that by providing rest and, and, and nourishment. We need to take care of our, our physical bodies. He meets our spiritual needs. For Elijah, that happened when he spoke with him, had encounters with him, was incredibly gentle. And it wasn't in the big, loud, and brashy stuff. It was, as scripture records, in the gentle breeze, in those quiet moments, he met Elijah's spiritual needs, and he will for us as well. He meets our relational needs. And for that, as the story goes along, he leads Elijah out to a companion named Elisha. And the two of them walk together all the way to the end. And he will meet our relational needs as well. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, he has a calling on your life. You, you cannot, you could try to avoid that, but you will not be able to. You have a calling on your life. And in the days ahead, may you and I let God provide what we need to follow that calling emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally. May we discover those things together here in the body of Christ. In the days ahead, may you and I stay healthy. And to do it, together so that we can keep our hands to the plow and stay the course all the way to the finish line. Let's pray. Father, we get the sense that you're up to something here in our lives. We always do. We, we struggle with that. Your call in our lives. We're excited about that. We recoil at that and all, all that and more. And yet we, this morning, as we approach a new season of ministry, want to say yes to you, individually and corporately as a church, that you would advance your kingdom here on earth in ways that are in splendor in heaven. We count it to be a privilege, and we love you back for it. Would you heal where that needs to heal? If there's one here this morning or someone in one of our lives that's struggling with depression and thoughts of suicide and the rest, may you lead that person to help would you heal that person and use us to that regard? And then take them and take us all into a place where we can answer your call to be fully alive and fully healthy as you intended. Jesus, we love you. Father, we thank you for your generosity of your beloved son. And Holy Spirit, we stand at the ready in Christ's name. Amen.